Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, everyone. Uh, the Passion reading will be taken from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. At the end of the reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying thanks be to God. Colossians 2, 9 to 15. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Fing. Thanks be to God. I could tell some people are already getting excited even by the reading of the word. And um, thank you, Victoria, for blessing us. Where is she? Where's Victoria? She's, she's gone out. Well, I thought the, um, her reflections, the, um, what do you call that thing? Spoken word. Yeah, that was really, it's really powerful, and we thank God for that. Can we just pray before we go into the Word? Lord, we thank you for um, this time. We thank you for um, what we are commemorating today. Um, And so we know that this great gift was given to us in your Son and that he died for us. And uh, we just pray that we want to look a little bit briefly into um, what that means to us. We pray that you would be with us by your spirit. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if I said good morning. Good morning, everyone. And I was speaking with Efe Dayo not too long outside. I said, uh, happy Good Friday. And she said, is there such a thing as happy Good Friday? I said, I just invented it. She said, you're an innovator. I said, no, I'm a trendsetter. All right. So let's, let's start this. Let's make it a thing. Happy Good Friday. All of you, all of you, all of you that didn't answer, you will never be a trendsetter. <laughs> Yikes! All right, you see, my wife just came in; she doesn't know what happened. All right, um, you know the thing about human beings is that we do like to, we like to celebrate days, we like to commemorate days. I, I can't lie to you; I get a number of texts, especially now that why are we doing? Some people send me texts: Why are we doing Good Friday celebrations? And the truth is that most churches, I think in Lagos, do not do Good Friday and. You know, first of all, it's not commanded in the Bible. 
you know, Good Friday and Easter. It's, it's certainly not commanded in the Bible, but I think it is inferred as a wise thing from the Bible. Um, also, how we think about human beings, how we um, just interact generally. So, like, we like to commemorate days, like our birthdays. Some of us not even our birth. It's moved from birthdays now to birth weeks, right? You, you, you. So the whole week itself is a birthday. Uh, some of us um, anniversaries. I remember sending um, uh, a happy anniversary to somebody in this. I shall not call to two people in this. Um, in this congregation yesterday, because one of them post pasted uh, a fantastic ode to the other person on Facebook, and you know, just talking about how many years they've been married and blah blah. So I sent them a text, and the person wrote me back and said, "It's not that it's their anniversary; they're just in a happy love mood. It's still a while." So I don't even know whether it's two months or three months from now. Is it? Oh, sorry. Ah. How did that even happen? We commemorate days. There are significant days in our lives. My wife and I had our own ninth anniversary three days ago. Yes, thank you. You guys are so nice. Is anybody looking for a favor here? <laughs> You've got it already, I can tell you. Now, but when we commemorated that, uh, let, let's think about that a little bit. At least I think it, it points us to three things. Uh, the first is that it's, there's a historical element to it. That is, three days ago, Nine days from three days ago, my wife and I actually got married. It's a, historically that happened. Second is that it has a deeper meaning beyond just the fact that it, um, it, it occurred historically. For us, that's for me and my wife, it is not just a moment of history, but it was a historic moment for us. It means for us that we not only love each other then, we still love each other now. It means that we've been committed to each other not for five days or for 50 days, but for nine years. It also means that despite knowing each other the more, we're increasingly comfortable with each other. Not just a historic moment, but it has a deeper meaning. And the third is that it has practical implications. One would, would be that we have to work together, to flourish together, because we have two children. So when we commemorate Good Friday, it's because of these three reasons. One, Jesus' death on the cross is a fact of history, attested to both in, uh, in the four witnesses of the Bible, but also outside of the Bible as well. You have non-Christian uh, witnesses to that. You can think of the Jewish uh, historian Josephus, or you can think of um, some of the other, the Roman um, political historians, Pliny, uh, Tacitus. So it's a historical um, 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 uh, moment of history. But at the same time, it's a historic event, not just a historical event. That's number two. It has a deeper meaning beyond its historical fact. And then the third thing is that it has practical implications for you and I. Now, those two, the last two reasons that I want us to think about today in this Good Friday sermon. If you think about, um, we're not reading from, we're not going, the text we've chosen is not one of the historical accounts, not for Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But if you go through any of those accounts, you wonder why it's called Good Friday. Because the whole day was anything but good. 
It was a day of injustice, a day of elitist corruption, a day of friendly betrayal, a day of mob rule, a day of weak leadership, a day of despicable mockery, a day of people's hopes dashed. Good Friday. And much more, for many of the people, when I say hopes dashed, it was a day when the supposed savior of the world was condemned. How can the one who is claimed to be God, as Paul shows us in verse 9, how can that one be killed? How can he die? And how does this death turn out to be good news? Well, you see, that's what Paul wants to explain to us. Paul assumes the historical fact. But now he wants to explain the deeper meaning to us. And we'll be focusing in particular on verses 13 to 15. Well, it's, this is the same text we're going to use on Sunday as well. But today we'll focus particularly on verses 13 to 15. And Paul is going to help us put this scattered puzzle together by pointing us to the deeper meaning of this monumental historical event. And he will also let us know what that means to us. So this sermon we titled The Condemned Conqueror. And in it, we will learn about two groups of people. One, the condemned and the conquered, and two, the condemned and conqueror. The condemned and conquered, and the condemned and conqueror. For those of you trying to think, yes, I only have two points today, all right? So let's start with the first one, the condemned and conquered. If I ask, how many of us have ever been in a situation of complete hopelessness? Complete hopelessness. I mean, a situation where everything is working against you, to such an extent that you have no way out. Now, I'm not asking how many of us have been in a bad situation, a difficult situation. I'm asking a situation of hopelessness. Take these three examples, for instance. It may be a financial situation. You know what a financial situation of hopelessness is? Someone say, yeah, I, I, my bills have not been paid. That's a difficult situation. A hopeless situation is when your bills have not been paid, but you're also in debt, and then you don't have a job. Right? That is what? Hopeless. hopeless. Bills have not been paid, you're in debt, and you don't have a job. Or maybe it's a marital hopeless situation, where one spouse constantly abuses the other spouse, mental, physical, or what have you. There's total communication breakdown. Then the one that is constantly being abused is totally financially dependent on the other. And then you belong to a, a church and uh, maybe you, you subscribe to a view of the faith that says there is no grounds for divorce. That's not a difficult marriage. That's a hopeless one. Or maybe finally, it could be a vocational situation. In the vocational situation, you have a, bu a bully as a boss, an abusive boss. But then you have incompetent subordinates. And you are placed in an unproductive working condition. And then there's five months of unpaid salaries. Not a difficult situation, but a hopeless situation. You know why they're all hopeless? It's because you first find yourself in an undesirable status. It's bad enough, right? If your bills are not paid, it's really bad. But then, 
not just do you find yourself in an undesirable status, you have no means of coming out. You see, if you had your bills not paid, but you were debt-free, that's something. If money came to you now, what would you do? You would be able to pay those bills. But if you, are, if you are in debt, where money comes to you, you don't pay those bills, you pay the debt, but then those bills become another debt. Isn't it? But it's completely hopeless because the source of that money, hopefully if you are working, there is none. You don't have a job. So your unpaid bills continue to add to the debt that you have, and there's no way out. The same thing, if you have an abusive spouse, how is it that you guys are going to talk about this issue, to try and resolve it, when there is a total communication breakdown? And at the same time, you can't just say, you know what, this thing was bad, I'm leaving, or I'm just going to buy things for myself. No, because you still have to go and ask the person for money to do certain things. And now you say, this is just totally terrible. Can't I just leave? Ah, God hates divorce. It is totally helpless. The situation is undesirable, but the means of coming out are taken away from you. But there's something else that is working. In those situations as well, there are both internal forces and external forces that are working against you. Internal forces, and how that affects you mentally or your own mistakes, but at the same time, things that you cannot control. You see, what Paul describes as a human condition in the text that we read in verse 13, he uses a very similar, um, dire, bleak, and let me just say hopeless terms. In fact, he uses one term to capture everything. Verse 13, he says, when you were dead. There's no more hopeless situation than being dead. I hope you know that. There's, there's, if somebody is dead, there is no, you can't call the person, you can't hope for the person to bail you out. There's nothing. You can't go to the... How many of you have a dead relative that you take to the doctor? It's completely hopeless. Paul says, our human condition is one of deadness. And you say, wait a minute, ah... How is that possible when I'm seeing people alive? Well, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. And he describes it using two metaphors. Uh, two, he describes it in two ways. Both of them, he says in. So you are dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your flesh. In your sins, that points to the rebellious actions that we commit. Actions, deeds. Rebellious actions that we commit... Basically, the things that God says don't do are the things we do. And the things that God says do are the things that we don't do. That's what he means by sins. The second thing, he says, the uncircumcision of your flesh. Those are the conditions or the, the condition, we, the moral and spiritual condition we find ourselves in. He describes it in verse 11, towards the end. He says, your whole self ruled by the flesh. Your whole self, in describing its own circumcised um, uh, state, he says your whole self is ruled by the flesh. So one is the actions we commit, but two is the conditions that enable that action to continue to happen. Now, very quickly, somebody is going to say, but I don't sin because I don't believe in God. I mean, I'm a good person by and large. You know, if you weigh my good deeds with my bad deeds, 
you know, you get a net positive. Every day, maybe I commit 70 good deeds, and I commit 69.5 bad deeds. Net 0.5. Now, first thing I want to say to such a person is, when you say you don't believe in God, then you don't sin. But now you just told me that you do good things and you do bad things, which means that you have a moral code, isn't it? You do have a moral code which, with which you measure good and bad. And if you have a moral code and you say, well, I commit good things and I commit bad things, and the way you know whether I'm a good person is when you do the plus versus minus. I want to ask, I've used this example many times. If I'm a citizen of a country and for 25 years I commit no crime whatsoever, no crime whatsoever, and then I go and steal somebody's car, and then they catch me. Do I say then, <laughs> officer, judge, for 25 years, look at, I have committed no crime. I've only done good. I have never stolen anybody's car. All right, I did one bad thing here. Please let me go. Because plus, minus, do the math. The judge will tell you that he is not a mathematician. He just is there to interpret the law. You are going to jail. Do you understand? Even without saying you believe in God, the way moral codes exist is that if you break one, you have broken all. And second, if you say, well, uh, that's my own personal moral code. Everybody has their own personal moral code. But this thing about universally disobeying God, one universal moral code, I, I, I don't know whether I agree with that. I would say, well, maybe you don't, but in that regard, you know, we can never objectively tell anybody you ought not to do this. We can say you ought not to do this in this society. You ought not to do this in this family. But you can't really say that it's totally wrong because everybody does what is right to them. That's what you are saying. But of course that's not true. We would not say that, you know, in Nigeria, we don't believe in... Um, in uh, sexually molesting children. But I cannot say what they would believe in New Zealand. It's for the New Zealanders to think about that. If you carry your child there and say, ah, sorry, in New Zealand, we, we molest our children. We don't even call it molestation. We just, children have to be free to determine, is that what you would say? You say, ah, it's my own, no. Whether the whole of New Zealand believe it or not, you would say they are wrong. In fact, we have an international court of human justice where we try people with war crimes, right? It is meant to be the United Nations court, it's meant to be a global court. How can we have such a court if we cannot agree on certain universal moral norms? And what the Bible is saying is that for that to actually exist, for that to be stable, justice cannot be based on a pole. Does Chidima think it's right? Does Evangelin think it's right? And then does Muiwa think it's right? If two of them think it's right and Muiwa thinks it's wrong, uh, two beat one, you understand? That's not the way. We have to believe, we believe that these ideals pre-exist before us, but they are given by a moral lawgiver. And so what Paul is saying is that sins are committed against that moral lawgiver. When he says this is the right way to live in the world, 
and we say this is the way we want to live, we commit sins. But this situation is not just bad because of what we do. The situation is bad because of why we do it. Remember, there is the actions of committing the sin, but also there is the condition that allows us to commit that sin. It's not just that you are dead in your sins, but in the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, when he's talking about flesh, he's talking about that power that, that works in our in our human nature that pushes us towards doing that which is wrong. Paul says you are ruled by it. That's why, as many of us will know this, uh, if you've not done anything bad um, this year, raise up your hand. If you've not done anything bad this year, raise up your hand. You know it's a trap now. You know it's a trap. You raise up, you raise up your hand, that's the bad thing you've done. Right? Because you just lied. Right? We know you already, there's no need to. Now, Paul is saying, you know you rose up your hand. Well, they didn't raise up our hands because we, we thought we've already, we know we've done something bad this year. We know we've done something bad. Here's the point, though. Did you know it was bad before you did it? Or you knew it was bad after you did it? If you knew what you did was bad, only after you did it, raise up your hand. The bad things you've done this year. If it is only after you've done it that you knew it was bad, raise up your hand. Okay, it was only after. But all the other things that you've done. Well, we, um, this is wonderful. Uh, I need to announce, guys, sorry, we have a saint in our midst. Saint Damoye. Thank you for gracing us with your presence. But for most of us, not everything, but I'm talking about everything. Like that it, everything you've done bad this year, is it only after? No, most of us. I'm sure if, that, if I speak to Muiwa, in fact, Muiwa would tell me that Damui is wrong, right? <laughs> most of us, all of us, know actually the things that are wrong, and we still do it anyway. Or how about the things that we are meant to do? We know before the fact that we are meant to do them, and yet we didn't do them. Why? There's a dilemma there. The things that I know I ought to do, I do not do them. The things I don't want to do, those I find myself doing. I desire it. I know I shouldn't look at that sight, but the women, they look very beautiful. I know I shouldn't spend that money. But that wristwatch looks so nice. Paul is saying it is because of a condition that we have. It's the disposition of our heart. It is to always commit sin. In other words, you are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. Or put it this way. Human beings are not fundamentally good people who occasionally, they're not fundamentally good people who occasionally do bad things. Human beings are fundamentally bad and we occasionally do good things. Oh boy, it gets worse. Because of all of these things, Paul says this. We have 
a legal, a charge of legal indebtedness, verse 14. A charge of legal indebtedness. We have a record, and that record, on that record, all of the bad things that we do, it's there. And this is now put in a judicial situation, and he then says two things happen. The first is that that thing stands against us. And then the second is that that thing what? Condemns us. It's a record that stands against us, and it then condemns us. In other words, our deadness, this deadness, his, his, our spiritual deadness, not only represents our sinful disposition and sinful reality, but it also represents our future penalty. Hmm. Are you talking about eternal judgment? Yes, I am. That's so why I said, oh, well, well, this is 2019. Growing up, that's what they used to use to scare us. I don't believe in that kind of Christianity. Or this is why I don't believe in Christianity. This whole issue about judgment, future judgment. Besides, there is no evidence of it. You say, I am in a condemned state. I don't think I'm in a condemned state because I'm currently not feeling that I'm in a condemned state. And I've not heard any God say so. Hmm. But let me say this. The fact that we are not under any specific present suffering doesn't mean that the future suffering would not exist. Why do I say so? As long as we have present evidence of the future judgment, we can believe the future judgment will happen. For example, let me give you two examples. This one is a bit controversial, but I'll use it anyway because I believe it. You know, we've heard of man-made climate change, right? Climate change and, and that the for Centuries now, the uh, average temperature of the world is actually rising. I'm not saying that some years it doesn't drop. I'm not saying anything. I'm saying that the trend itself, the overall trend itself, is rising. We are seeing melting. Uh, there's melting happening in the in, in Antarctica and North Pole. There are so many different things that are happening. You can see droughts in so many different places. Whether you believe this or not, just let's assume that people that are talking about it are right. What do they point to? They say if this trend continues and the overall temperature of the world continues to rise, not only will you continue to have more floods, more uh, natural disasters, you will then start to have wars as people fight over land. Basically, there is a doomsday scenario that is coming for the world. How do they come to that conclusion? Not only with the data, but the fact that the world is getting hotter. That is, the evidence for future judgment, future doom, is already seen in present suffering. I'll give another example. This one I recently found out, and I'll show it to my friends. How many of us use painkillers or use certain kinds of medicines when we are, or, um, or antibiotics when we have uh, bacterial infection or virus? And the thing doesn't work like it used to work 15 years ago. Huh? How many of us? Well, first of all, because you are able to go and buy it in the pharmacy. That's the problem. Now, the, a lot of research is showing this. Antibiotics came in, one of the greatest inventions of the 20th, of the 20th century, which allowed the, you know, our, uh, what do you call it, uh, the, the average age. You, what do you call that thing? Our mortality, yeah? don't talk too much. Just give me one answer. Mortality rate, all right. Uh, uh, we knew you went to school, but this isn't. Life expectancy, 
Olodo. As I was, that's why he rose up his hand when I asked how many people have not done anything bad thing. Yeah. Life expectancy. Our life expectancy has grown. When people, when life expectancy was below the age of 40 because of antibiotics, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't, we didn't have antibiotics, that ear infection that you have was killing people. That simple small cold that you had killing people. We just took antibiotics. But what, what antibiotics used to do was to kill the bacteria that was causing that. <coughs> but the problem is that we have, we have a lot of useful bacteria in the body. Now, the more we keep using antibiotics, especially when we don't need, when the body can fight it, the more we keep doing that, we are creating more bacteria that grows, eventually it mutates. And those adapt to the antibiotics that we've been taking. Therefore, this is why more and more the bacteria have evolved, they've evolved to become more resistant. And here's the point that a lot of people are pointing to. There will come a time when the antibiotics that we use will not be sufficient to deal with this bacteria. And so we'll start to die often again. Very, very quickly. The end of the world, right? If it's not climate change, it's bacteria that will get us. What evidence do they have? And you can't avoid it because it's everywhere, right? It's not just the antibiotics. You know the, anti the food that you take, the chickens and the meat. They give them antibiotics so that they don't die. And I say, hey, that's why I'm vegetarian. Actually, those chicken and those meat and all of those things, you know their poop is used as manure. The manure is used to, for your plants, for your veggies. You can't avoid it, right? We are all antibiotics filled. It's just. <laughs> but what is the evidence of that doomsday scenario they're talking about? It is the presence already, the presence already of Re antibiotic resistant bacteria. What is the evidence of future eternal judgment? The evidence for future spiritual death is present physical death. The evidence for future eternal judgment is present temporary judgment. And yet it's even more, it's worse. Not only do we sin, not only are we in a sinful condition, not only do those things stand against us in judgment, but also, remember, those are all internal forces, your sin and your, your, your sinful disposition. There's also, wait for this, we Nigerians will love this one, external forces. Paul talks about the powers and authorities. Yes, the people in your village, they exist. <laughs> The powers and authorities. Now, what does this represent? It basically represents the presence of spiritual forces, external spiritual forces, that A, tempt us, they lure us to sin. So when we sin, it's because of our sinful condition, but many times external forces tempt us to sinning, that's A, or two, they just wreak, wreak havoc in the world. Sometimes we look at the kind of evil that's in the world, the kind of slaughtering, the kind of war, the kind of, you know, I was talking to some of my friends yesterday, we talked about the kind of fake food that is, in, that is sold. I've seen fake kilichi. How do you make fake kilichi out of rubber? I'd be like, people want people to eat, uh, eat that? Or fake, how about fake prescription drugs sold? Or the way people butcher themselves. I say, there is something 
subhuman about this behavior. And that's because it's true. The Bible presents a world where, yes, human beings are there, but that there are also forces that we don't see, and yet we have evidence of them in the way they behave. They're saying, look, the evil that is in this world isn't just down to human beings alone. So we have the internal forces, we have the external forces, and then we have this legal charge of indebtedness against us. It stands against us and it condemns us. Tell me of a more hopeless situation than this. Well, that brings me to my second point, the condemned and conqueror. You know that hopeless situation, the financial, the vocational, and the marital that I discussed, I talked about earlier. How does somebody get out of it? What if in the financial situation, someone says, try harder now. I says, oh, why don't you just innovate? That's how Steve Jobs got out of it. Be like Steve Jobs. <laughs> like, if everybody could be like Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs would not be Steve Jobs. The problem is that you are so debilitated that you can't come out of that condition. Listen, the only way you can get out of a hopeless situation is when someone helps you out. You need help from outside. Imagine the person in a financial situation has someone that pays their bills, clears their debt, and connects them with a job. That's help. Imagine those in the marital situation, they visit a counselor who is able to confront the abuser to make them repent. He makes them start to um, communicate because he helps them to listen better. And he also makes the person who provides the finances to know that they are only able to make that amount of money because the other person is taking care of the front at home. That is the kind of help you need. But you see, the restoration does not come to a hopeless situation if there is no force or there is no intervention from the outside. And we are told in this text that the hopeless eternal situation that we have can be changed. And that the God who is going to be the judge on eternity is the only one that can change it. Our judge alone is our savior. Look at verses 13 to 14. Look at what it says. It says, that legal indebtedness can be canceled. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. That is, he wipes the document bearing an accusation. And what does he do in verse 13? He forgives all our sins. How many of our sins? Some? You see, at this point, someone is thinking, Femi, you don't understand. I have two different types of sins. There are my right sin, hand sins, and there are my left hand sins. My right hand sins, I can understand why God will forgive me. Right? They're just things here. I put here, you know, I, I told a white lie. I, I slapped my wife. I, you know, well, all those unserious things, right? Those small ones. All right. Okay, no, okay, okay, let's take it back. Let's take it back. No. I told a lie. I beat the traffic light. I hear all of those kinds of things. So I have plenty of those ones. And even the best of us 
do that. I'm sure Nelson Mandela, I'm sure he beat traffic once in his life. <laughs> but then I have these other ones. I've committed not one abortion, I've committed two abortions. I have slept with no, no less than 20 people, and I'm not yet married. I have stolen a significant amount of money from my company, and yet they don't know. Cheated on my spouse, and yet they don't know. I can understand God forgiving my right-hand sins. But the left-hand sins, let's say I had one of them. I can understand. But I went to him to repent about that one, and I committed it again. How many sins does he forgive? All. See, you don't understand. I'm saying, no, you are the one that doesn't understand. You see, the forgiveness of some of our sins is not enough. The forgiveness of most of our sins will still be inadequate. The forgiveness of all but one of our sins, you know what we'll do? It will still condemn you. Because if you break one part of the moral code, you have broken everything. You either get free totally, or you don't get free at all. Either God forgives all your sins, or he forgives none of your sins. Like, that's a bit of ear candy stuff. It sounds tickling to my ear. So what do I have to do? How do, I, how do I get, what do I need to do to earn this forgiveness? And I say, well, look at the text. It tells you exactly what you have to do to earn to work for the forgiveness. Look at the text. What does it say? It doesn't say anything. Do you know why? Because there's nothing for you to do. The forgiveness of all of your sins is completely free. And you say, no, this doesn't make any sense. This seems like a perversion of justice, some kind of judicial fiction, some kind of cosmic hanky-panky. And we're talking about something serious here. And I'm like, yes, Paul is saying that this is very serious. It is totally free because there are some things that are so expensive, the only way you can afford it is to get them free. You know, you talk about debt relief. Remember Nigeria um, in the, um, during Obasanjo's just time? Do you remember that? Paris debt, cancelled. You know, part of the problem we have now is that when you think of our debt, um, our debt that we have, some people, are, some people, economists are saying Nigeria should no longer borrow anything. Why? Because the amount of money that we are paying to just service the debt, not the debt, to service the debt is about 50 to 60% of our GDP. Some are saying it could even rise to 60 to 70%. Now, I'm not, I'm not taking a position. My point is this. How do you get out of that? It is so expensive. The only way is like what they did in the other time. Please, forgive me. <laughs> Sometimes, some things are so expensive, the only way you can afford them is free. But you see, but Femi, there is no free lunch. And this is, what, this is what we say, this is what the elders have said, that a wolf, they what? They run belly. I can't just take anything free. Now, forget, I don't like that thing, because actually I've eaten a wolf food. 
And even if he runs belay, I will continue to take it. Some of them will be so sweet, I don't mind the belay running. As in, it's okay. But here's the thing about a free lunch. If Kemi and I went out today and Kemi, uh, if I got free lunch, you know how it is with when you take a pastor out. I pray, you pay. All right? <laughs> don't cancel on me, please. Don't cancel. Some of you I want to cancel now. I get a free lunch. Absolutely free. I pay nothing for it. I eat. I don't wash plates. I, I step out. Free lunch. It was free to me, but it was costly to her. The thing about a free lunch is that, yes, it is free to someone, but it costs someone something. Have you ever forgiven someone before? When you've, have any of us forgiven someone who has done something very, very hurtful to you? Here's the thing. No one can really, what do they do for their forgiveness? If you say, I want to punish you, I want to punish, when you say you want to punish somebody so that they can earn your forgiveness, they don't, because you're making them pay, and most times you don't even still feel like you're forgiving them. When you forgive someone, do you just say, all right, uh, did that thing that you did, the way you uh, betrayed me, you know, betrayal is not good, don't do it again, all right. No. Most of us, when we have when, when we're forgiving someone, especially in something like betrayal, we do it with tears. We do it shaking. You know why? The forgiveness is free to them, but it's extremely costly to you. The anger and the, if you like, judgment, the right judgment that you want to put on that person, you have to absorb it. That is why it's very painful. When it says that God forgives all our sins, it is free to you, but it is extremely costly to who? To God. How do I know that? Now, don't forget in verse 9, it tells us who Jesus or Christ is. In the fullness of deity dwells what? In him. And then it tells us how these sins have been forgiven. It says those things that stood against us and condemned us, what did it do? It nailed them to the cross. Like, how do you nail something as abstract as condemnation and accusation? Well, no, it's a metaphoric way of saying it nailed, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he was suffering a condemnation. The condemnation that should come, rightfully come on us as we have rebelled against God, God absorbed it on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. That is how you go free. That is how all our sins are forgiven. And that is how he says, you who are dead, God has made you alive with who? With Christ. You say, wow. All right. Yeah. That sounds good. There's just one more problem. My village people. Because I can see the internal stuff. But the external ones, uncle, what happened to them? What about the power, the right they have over me because I am, I remove myself out of contention to being God's possession? Well, here's what it says. It says that even on that cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them 
on the cross. He triumphed over them. How? Now, he's used the metaphor, if you were a Roman general, you went out for war, and you came back victorious. When you came back, you know what you would do? You have on your parade, you have some of the prisoners that you took uh, from the battle, some of the guys that you, you conquered, you will bring them along with you on your parade, and you will make a public spectacle of them. It says that on the cross, Jesus disarmed them. He made them powerless and made a public spectacle. And you say, how? Don't forget, what is the job of these powers and authorities? Because they will not repent. They will not be restored to God. They know that they will be eternally judged. But they want to take as many people as they can with them. So anything that will try to save people, they come against. They knew that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But they did not know how. And so they thought, if this is the savior of the world, what is the best thing to do to end the plan? Is it not to kill him? Bingo. Because Jesus worked as though with their plan. It was as though as he was going to the cross, he was luring them, luring them. God was bringing all the evil of the world and he was putting it in one central point where Jesus was and when he condemned him, as Romans said, in the flesh. Evil was totally destroyed. This is why 1 Corinthians 2 verse 7 to 8 says, If they had known the princes of this world would not have crucified the, world, the Lord of glory. But they did not know. I don't know if someone is here and you think it is your sins, your terrible things that are keeping you away. Jesus, as we sang, paid it all. I don't know if you think that because of all the external circumstances that you have, you cannot be a, a Christian. These things are working against you. I can't be a good person. Remember, you cannot earn it. It's a free lunch. All he asks for is this. Do you admit your sinfulness? And do you also admit that only Jesus can take it away? Why not come to Jesus? And friends, this is how the darkness of Good Friday, or the darkness of that Friday, turned into Good Friday. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.